1: This is Father Mark Bulos with The Bible as Literature podcast. Let the canon of our holy God-bearing fathers be confirmed in this particular also that a presbyter is not ordained before he is 30 years of age even if he is a very worthy man. Let him be kept back. Our Lord Jesus Christ was baptized and began teaching when he was 30. In like manner, let no deacon be ordained before he is 25, nor a deaconess before she is 40. Canon 14 of the Council in Trullo in the 7th century. This canon, patterned after scripture, reflects the common sense of Luke's Gospel an attitude that would become pervasive in early Christian traditions. It is good for a person to wait. Just as Jesus had no say in his name, like any human child, no matter how talented, wise or knowledgeable, he was accountable to God to honor and obey his parents, to submit to instruction at home, and to wait until the appointed time to begin his ministry. So strict is the hearing of this teaching in the Coptic church that a man is forbidden to seek ordination of his own free will. A candidate for the priesthood is only a candidate if he is called, in a very literal sense, if his bishop contacts him and says, I would like you to be ordained a priest. In this tradition, from the candidate's perspective, everything, the time and even the opportunity to serve, is totally in God's hands. In a preview of what he will write in the Acts of the Apostles, Luke proclaims an increase in the wisdom of the child Jesus under the law of the Lord. Jesus, at the age of 12, is not the same man who will begin his teaching ministry at 30. As Luke keeps stressing, the child Jesus continues to grow. In Luke, it is the law of the Lord that imparts grace, and every person, including Jesus, must submit to it, even if it ends in crucifixion. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 41 to 52.
0: You're listening to the Bible as Literature.
1: This is Father Mark Bulos,
0: And this is Dr. Richard Benton.
1: And you are listening to episode 469 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Religious folk love to talk about growth. Capitalist folk love to talk about growth. People who like to build things love to talk about growth. When people make a poster for Lent, they talk about, as Father Paul likes to joke, growing in humility. He always makes fun of people who want to grow in humility. How can you grow in order to become small? Those of us who are scriptural are always chuckling about the use of the word growth, because scripture is about The inevitability of things crumbling. We talked about that last week. It comes up all the time. It's a common theme that the only thing that does not die is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, we hear in the Gospel of Matthew, but the words of God will not pass away. That is the teaching, and it is a lesson in humility that we learn our smallness, that we truly understand our place in the order of things, which we never do. We keep talking about growing and expanding and building. That is the folly of the human being. Just listen to how Christians spoke. Listen to Dorothy Day when she opens her mouth. She does not speak about Catholicism. She speaks about the Gospel of Matthew. We have a lot to learn we quote, modern Christians. Now, what's interesting is that Luke, in chapter 2, does talk about Jesus' growth, which implies that Jesus is receiving instruction, which is something one never hears about when people explain this text. Now, someone who is receiving instruction has something to learn, and that means that there's a difference between the infant Jesus and the 12-year-old Jesus and the Jesus who will appear later in the story of the Gospel of Luke. But the growth comes from the instruction, the words of God the Father, the teaching, the law of the Lord, which is the agent and the star actor in Luke chapter two. When we talk about growth as a religious person, as an economist, a capitalist, as a person making a Lenten poster or an OCF poster, as we desperately try to recruit people to attend our meetings, we are talking about our growth. When Luke talks about growth, in the book of Acts, he is talking about the growth of the gospel, not the growth of the church. Just search the book of Acts and hear what we are teaching. When Luke talks about the growth of Jesus and wisdom, he is talking about what the instruction is adding to Jesus. It's written in the text, and we need to hear and submit to what is written, just as Jesus will be reminded to submit to his earthly parents.
0: This section of Luke is about his childhood, and Luke is already unique in the detail it goes into for Jesus's infancy and birth and conception, and John the Baptist conception and birth and naming, and all this backstory, this prequel that Luke is obsessed with, this is what Theophilus needs to know. We have to keep going back to this point. Why do we have to know about this? Wasn't it enough in Matthew to know about Jesus being born and then being adult? For some reason, Luke decided that we need to know about what he was like when he was a tween, when he was 12 years old. And I don't know who likes to hear stories about 12-year-olds, but the last time I think I heard a story of a 12-year-old, I think it was Beverly Cleary. It's not really a hot topic what 12-year-olds are like. But for some reason, Luke needed this as part of his narrative. In order for the lover of God to know what he needs to know, O Theophilus, you need to know about this childhood of Jesus. Now, we make all kinds of assumptions, and it's mixed up because we don't listen to Luke separately from Matthew and Mark. We have theological preconceptions about who Jesus is, who Jesus was, and what I personally know about Jesus, but we're not reading the text. And if we are reading the text, we're reading it in English, and subtle translation nuances can affect the way that we read things, and we're going to see exactly how this comes to pass in this reading, because we're learning about Jesus midway between being an infant and being an adult, and this is an essential stage in understanding the development of the character of Jesus in Luke's story.
1: Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover, And when he became twelve, they went up according to the custom of the feast, and as they were returning after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents were unaware of it, but supposed him to be in the caravan and went a day's journey. And they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. A few things to note about this passage, Richard. Number one, this is something they did every year on the Feast of Passover, which means there was a pattern of behavior to which all three of them were accustomed. There was an expected ritual. This was a family tradition They went up every year to Jerusalem to do this. This year was different because he turned 12, which, of course, is a rite of passage, a symbolic age of adulthood, something akin to the modern practice of the quinceanera and the Latin tradition. And after spending the full number of days, Jesus... Remember, this would not have been his first rodeo. He's a little older now, but someone who is 11 years old is almost as much of a tween as someone who is 12 years old. Jesus at the age of 11 would have known you don't ditch your parents when they leave the city. It's just at 12, the urge to ignore your parents is a little bit stronger. Luke was no dummy when he wrote this story. Anyone who's a parent knows the difference between the ages of 10, 11, and 12. Rich and I are both fathers. We know how this works. We know what the age of 12 is. We know how each parent assumes, well, one of the parents has it covered. And I happen to know what it's like to be in a big family where you can trust someone in the extended family to have it covered. And Jesus, even at the age of 11, would have known that his parents would have expected someone to have it covered. To this day, after church, when my wife is not present, my children know to let me know who they left church with. And even my kids who drive let me know which of my children, there's only one left who doesn't drive, When they leave church, they let me know if or if not the child who doesn't drive left with one of them. And we are not as tribal, not nearly as tribal or connected as they would have been at the time of this text. So it's not a small thing that after a full day, Jesus was still hanging out and they were unaware of it. Well, we don't know that yet. I'm skipping ahead, Rich. But I'm cheating.
0: Luke builds this tension up. And when we're reading closely, we have to recognize this. On the one hand, you know, it said he was wise. And on the same time, it seems like he wasn't a very wise 12 year old. Maybe he's wise as you get when you're 12, but certainly not at the pinnacle of wisdom at 12. He was not wise beyond his years, evidently. One of the reasons why we think that is because we misread verse 40 in the King James, he waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom and the grace of God was upon him, but the Greek says he grew strong in spirit while filling with wisdom. It doesn't say he was filled. That's what the King James says. The participle in Greek shows that it's an ongoing action. It's not a completed action. So this is a stage in Jesus's wisdom, and maybe it's not a shining moment of wisdom for Jesus. We don't know for sure. But we read the text and, Father, you make a good case why an 11-year-old would have made a wiser decision than this 12-year-old Jesus. So I thought he was becoming wiser. Well, like any 12-year-old, he's trying to sort out what's his business but his business is to be doing what his parents are doing and to not make his parents panic over where did the kid go? Evidently, he's an only child. They have to worry about him. The tension that Luke builds up, I don't want to get lost in some kind of idealized, theological view of Jesus being perfect, and Jesus doing everything, and Jesus is an obedient son, and he smiles at the butcher when he goes to the butcher shop, and he's always polite, and he always greets the old ladies on the street. We can imagine that about Jesus, but it's not in the text. It's not in the text. He was being filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him, but it doesn't say that he was already wise when he was 12. And for that matter, if someone showed you a wise 12-year-old, I think you'd say, we'll see how he ends up when he's 20, when he's 30. We'll see what kind of wisdom he has. But if you try to judge a human's wisdom by what they do on a so-so or an off day when they're 12, I don't know what you can really say. So it's significant that Luke put this story of Jesus's disrespect towards his parents and staying behind while at the same time describing him as one who was growing strong in spirit and being filled with wisdom or filling with wisdom what does it mean to be filling with wisdom and to act this way around your parents that's the situation that luke leaves us in and we have to take this text seriously in order to understand jesus as a true Theophilus who is hearing this text.
1: When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Then after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Again, as a parent, yes, it's wonderful that my kid is doing so well listening and studying and answering questions. He's obviously intelligent, which is a credit to his father in the heavens, which is something that will unfold in the story. This is something that Mary and Joseph have to themselves be taught because earlier there's something metaphoric about them searching for him among their relatives and acquaintances. There's something symbolic there, because you're not going to find the anointed one of Israel among your relatives. That's always a constant theme in Scripture. You will never find God among your relatives. Trust me on that. At the same time, honor your father and mother. Where do we read that? In the law of the Lord that we've been consistently hearing over and over again. Too many people use God as their whipping boy to throw their family away or to throw their parents away, especially in the West where people like to go shopping for a new religion every couple of years and then blame their parents for raising them in the wrong religion. It's classic let's be honest with ourselves. To switch your religion very often is to switch your family, psychologically. Because when people switch religions, it's not about the gospel, it's about your tribal identity. Because whichever religion you go to, you're dealing with the same gospel. So what are we talking about? You're switching families. And then you use God as your deflector shield or your weapon against your family of origin. You know, the family that God himself gave you. So I bring this up because there's a great deal at stake here in the relationship between Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, as they are referred to in the Catholic tradition, the Holy Family. So I can tell you once again, Rich, and I'm sure you would have plenty to say about this, It's wonderful that your child is so intelligent and is outsmarting the learned teachers in the temple. But as a parent in that moment, kid, you had me worried sick. Where the heck have you been?
0: Yeah, you know, he was certainly developing. He's certainly beyond his years that he's having these discussions with teachers. And his intelligence, his shrewdness, and his ability to respond to questions is uncanny. But you're right, first things first, you're worrying your parents sick, so how smart are you really? You know it's funny. this is the stage of Jesus' book smartness. He really understands the books. He understands the answers to give at a certain question, but he doesn't know how to proceed. So the knowledge of God is getting in through this skull. and he seems to be gifted at this. He seems to be ahead of his years at this, and this seems to be something that was in this spirit and this wisdom that he's gaining and that he's growing strong in. But yes, how does he treat his parents? Is it okay to treat your parents in this way? I mean, I think it would be weird to say, well, he's Jesus. He can do whatever he wants when Hebrew says he was glorified because he was obedient. It wasn't Jesus glorified because he was Jesus. Jesus was glorified because he received honor, or he received hadith from God. It was because he was obedient. But here we have a clear act where he didn't follow the program. He didn't do what his parents did. In everything that the parents did, look how many times they fulfilled, they fulfilled, they fulfilled, they fulfilled. Simeon, Anna, fulfilled. Zecharias couldn't speak until he was ready to speak. The words of the Lord. Fulfilling the law of the Lord, the law of Moses, has been utmost here. Being able to recite it, while necessary, is not sufficient for obedience. So, Mary not only knew what she needed to be doing, she did what she needed to be doing. She fulfilled the law that she knew. So far, we see Jesus as knowledgeable beyond his years but fulfilling the obedience, I'm not sure. Worrying his parents sick like this. Luke puts this in an uncomfortable situation and we have to be ready to face that darkness even of Jesus's disobedience.
1: It's funny, I don't know if you recall, Richard, Professor John Abu-Jamra, who ironically had a background in child psychological development, used to talk a lot when we were in school about the importance of knowing the price of hamburger meat, meaning that there always needs to be a practical edge to your knowledge. And that I think is the point that Luke is raising here about the 12 year old Jesus who is still growing in wisdom under the instruction of the Torah. That's the trick. It's wonderful that you can take the entire staff and faculty of the temple cult to school, but it's not okay that Mary and Joseph are worried sick because of it. That is the metaphoric price of hamburger meat in this example. It's not okay. You can't march off to do these things when it's causing suffering— to those closest to you. So this is an interesting episode and probably surprises a lot of our listeners. We hear the text with filters on, or as Paul says, we have blinders over our eyes. The real problem is we don't face the darkness in ourselves. We are not honest with ourselves. About ourselves, and so therefore we can't hear what the story is saying. The more perfect things in the world appear to you, the more you try to avoid pain, the more you try to avoid uncomfortable things, whether you're hearing the scriptural text or you're experiencing life as it happens, the more it says about your dishonesty about yourself. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and answers. So it was impressive. Obviously impressive. No one is denying that Jesus is the anointed one of Israel. No one is denying that this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are here to proclaim where he ends up in the story, on the cross, not the center of attention at the age of 12. That's not where this story ends. When they saw him, they were astonished, and his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand the statement which he had made to them. Now, here's the thing. Sometimes it's not enough to be right. There's a tension in this discussion. Mary is pleading with him. Her anxiety is legitimate. She and Joseph were wronged. Like they were looking for their kid. They're worried sick. Anybody who doesn't feel for them in this situation is being dishonest. I'll never forget, Richard, It was a Minnesota winter, 10 below zero, something crazy. And they were supposed to hold the kids at the middle school. And I went to go pick up my oldest daughter. And for whatever reason, she was a preteen. For whatever reason, she decided, probably because she had a streak of her mother's rugged individualism, her Siberian mother who does everything with absolute fearless self Dependence. She decided to try to walk home. It was dark and freezing and she wasn't appropriately dressed. Alla and I thought we were going to die. She walked the wrong direction down a road to nowhere. We were looking for her for what seemed like an eternity. Thank God obviously we found her now she's in college and everything's okay. But the point is, any parent who's ever had trouble finding their kid knows that this is not a small thing that Mary and Joseph went through. I want this to sink into people's skull. Because you all hear this and dismiss it because you say, oh, well, it's Jesus. You're hearing what you want to hear through your candy-colored filter. Oh, well, you didn't get it because I was about my father's business. There's tension because it is correct what Jesus is saying but it shows no deference to the injury caused to his father and mother whom he is supposed to honor according to the law of the lord
0: you hit upon one thing father and i wanted to make a couple comments about the translations here because there's a few points that i notice are significant first of all when mary addresses him the uh, king james says son but the greek is technon which means child So Mary is reminding Jesus that even though he thinks he's fully grown at 12 years old, he's a child. That's the first thing. The second thing is that this isn't about how Jesus treated them. In the Greek, why did you do thus to us? Why did you do? This puts a strong contrast between Jesus's overflowing brain of knowledge, contrasting with how was it possible for him to do thus to his parents? So we have the action versus the knowledge. For Mary, it's natural. When you know you have to go about doing these things, such as sacrificing the birds for the one who breaks the womb, she does it. Knowing is as good as doing for Mary. For Jesus, however, it's different because He knew better but he didn't do. The second one is that the translation of Jesus being in his Father's house—house house is not mentioned here, and you alluded to this when you were talking about it, because it says, among the things that are my Father's. So, what Jesus is saying is that he is immersing himself in the Word, it's not the fact that he's in the house of the Lord. It's that he's immersing himself in debating and discussing and learning and responding to the teachers. Okay? That's the important part, not where it's taking place. And it's significant because it never mentions here that the temple belongs to the Father. But the things that Jesus is about, according to Jesus, are his Father's things. So these points bring home a certain tension that we've been seeing throughout this passage, which is the word versus the deed. Jesus knows, but he's not ready to do. Jesus knows beyond his years, but actions betray his youth, his childhood, his childishness, not childlikeness in the most beautiful, naive way. But he's dependent on his parents still to feed him. He's dependent on his parents to bring him back to Nazareth. But he ignores this because he's about things that he sees are more important while worrying his parents sick. So performing this dishonor against his parents. Because also, don't forget, his parents look bad. They had to ask around where their own child was, they lost their kid. He dishonored his parents, he shamed his parents. By doing this because it like you didn't even know where you, you how many days and you didn't even know where your kid was come on you only have one and he's the salvation of Israel. you couldn't keep track of him come on
1: I mean look for those of us who grew up in a very structured traditional religion like the Eastern Orthodox faith, it's certainly true of our brothers and sisters in the Roman Catholic Church. It's not uncommon that you'll have a young man or a young woman who's interested in, you know, becoming a nun or who even thinks about the priesthood even though it's not allowed in those traditions. It's not uncommon that someone who's interested in the Bible or religion or liturgy will start thinking about the priesthood from a very young age. I know I was interested in the priesthood from the age of 10 or 11. And I was the kid who wanted to argue religion in class. I went to a Catholic school. I used to get into debates with the Catholic clergy about all kinds of topics. And on the one hand, because I was interested, I was knowledgeable for my age. That's just typical, though, of young people who are interested in religion. And I think Jesus here, obviously, is exceptional, I'm not comparing him to the average religious person. He's the exceptional character in the exceptional gospel. But the point Luke is making is that he's also 12 years old. And what comes to mind here is the canons that talk about not allowing someone to be ordained until they reach a certain age. And as I recall, and I'll defer to someone who has expertise in church canons, I don't. As I recall, I think the official age is 30, which is patterned after the age that Jesus began his ministry in the gospel stories. So there's something here in the text that Jesus is not ready, as you said, Richard, to begin his ministry. He's only 12, yet he's trying to start his ministry at the age of 12 because he's knowledgeable, but it's not time yet. He still has to learn to do the dishes, collect the laundry, I don't know, work with Joseph on his carpentry duties, whatever it is that we don't hear about in the gospel story that kids do when they're being apprenticed by a carpenter in Nazareth in their tweens. There's a little something, something in the rule that limits when you can begin your pastoral ministry, the canons limiting the age of ordination. And I'm not comparing the work of the Messiah to the work of the priesthood. That's not the point. There's just something in the age of ordination being patterned after the age at which Jesus began his ministry, if my memory serves me correctly with respect to church canons. And he went down with them, and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. Luke did not choose the word subjection arbitrarily. And it is, of course, a technical term in Greek. He is submitting to them. He is putting himself under them in fulfillment of that refrain throughout Luke chapter 2 about the law of the Lord. It's part of his continual growth and instruction and wisdom under the grace of the proclamation of the Torah by the witness of Simeon through the preaching of Anna, whom he encountered in the temple. So he is growing in instruction. And here part of that growth is being reminded to submit to Mary and Joseph, which is essential at the age of 12.
0: So his parents didn't understand exactly what Jesus meant by this. They did understand how they had a duty to take care of their son. And yes, he had to be subject to them. He had to be placed under them. And we have other uses of this word in Romans 8.20, And in 1 Corinthians 15, 27, where things were put in submission, Jesus had to submit. So all the theology about how Jesus didn't have to worry about following the regular rules because this is Jesus, and it's okay if Jesus is disrespectful because it's Jesus, his parents would just have to understand. No. He went down to Nazareth, and he was subject, he was placed underance. He had to submit to his parents. He had to obey his parents. He was able to make all the good arguments against the teachers, but he had to submit and do precisely what his parents made him do. This is what would make him do the right thing. Be obedient, which is how he received the glorification from his father. Not by knowing all the stuff, but by being subjected to, to Mary and Joseph, who themselves may not have understood exactly all the words that Jesus was saying, but they were obedient to the Word when they went to Jerusalem every year on the Passover.
1: And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature, in favor with God and men, and of course the word favor here is still grace. We're still talking about Anna, the prophetess, but they like to play games with translation. So the key is Jesus continues to receive instruction and he continues to grow. There is a growth, but the agent of the growth is the Torah. It is adding wisdom to Jesus through the efforts of his earthly parents who are taking care of him. It is only by subjecting to them that he grows. That's The bittersweet fact of how life works. And there's just something about waiting. You know, it reminds me of the legend of Paul and Thecla, which is a beautiful template for martyrdom in the early church. In the good old days when you had to be martyred before you could be declared a saint, where Thecla wanted to be baptized and Paul kept saying, Wait. And then her baptism was in the arena. You wait and you are patient. And then things happen according to the will of the Father, not according to the way you want things to happen. There is so much power in waiting. And here, in a way, Luke is saying, even Jesus had to wait. And the tragedy is that he's being asked to wait for his time to do the work of his Father, which will result in his execution. That is the bittersweet pill of the teaching of the gospel, the preaching of the Apostle Paul. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton.
0: Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.